Stay tuned for Wild Oak Living. Good morning, Mendocino County and beyond. This is Johanna Wild Oak. You are listening to Wild Oak Living, the program about living sustainably and developing community in Mendocino County and beyond. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. If you have any questions or any feedback or any suggestions for future topics, you can get in touch with me by sending an email to contact at wildoak.org. That's contact at wildoak.org. Today, we are going to have a fascinating conversation about several fascinating topics, so please stay tuned. We're going to be talking today, I'm going to be talking today with Jenny Stevens, who is the author of a book uh, called Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. Stevens argues that women in communities of color have for too long been underrepresented and overimpacted by the growing wealth gap and the deepening global climate crisis. She makes the argument that giving voice and agency to almost three quarters of our population can have potential earth-changing results. So stay tuned for this conversation today. So welcome to Wild Earth Living, Jenny Stevens. Thank you so much, Johanna. Great to be on the show. We've been, we've been working on having you on the show for a while, and I'm so glad that it finally worked. And uh, yes. since we first started talking, lots of things have happened in the world. I, I want, and I want to connect what you write about in your book with what is happening in the world. But before we get into that, I'd like to talk about um, your background a little bit. Let me just uh, tell people, uh, well, actually, you, why don't you just, in your own words, tell people you know, who you are, what you're doing, and how you got how you got into writing this book what what inspired you to write this book yeah well thank you i am i'm a, a academic and an activist and a social justice um uh, advocate um and i my background is i'm currently a professor at northeastern university in boston um but and my background is really in the science and engineering originally of the of climate and environment, but in, throughout my career over the past um, two decades, I've really become more and more interested in exploring the social and political dimensions of how we are have been responding to. Cl- the climate crisis and our energy system and why we have continued to rely on fossil fuels as much as we had we have and so i've really um kind of shifted in my career and in 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 writing this book to really elevate the innovative things that so many creative and inspiring people are doing um to uh connect the climate crisis and the potential for renewable energy with other issues. Um, and and th- I think that's really central to how we need to be thinking about 
um, climate in that it is so interconnected with so many other things. And it's not something that we can keep in isolation and kind of think about as a separate issue to everything else. It's actually connected to so many other things. And it's interesting, uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at at bio uh, on your website, which, by the way, if people want to check it out, is jennystevens.com, and that's spelled J-E-N-N-I-E. Oh, it's jennystevens.com, I'm sorry. Jenny is spelled G-E-N-N-I-E, C is the letter C, Stevens is spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S, so jennystevens.com. You can check out information about my guest today for those of you who like to do multitasking. You are also you are um, the director for strategic research collaboration at at your university, Northeastern University's Global Resilience Institute, and you also work with the institute for um, with the uh, uh, gender women's gender and sexuality studies program and civil engineering, the Department of Civil Engineering. So that's a, it's a really interesting combination of. Of, uh, of fields um, that must give you a pretty unique perspective on the world. Yes, yes. And I think um, one of the things that I've recognized is that we put a lot of emphasis on science and technology, which is important and obviously critical. And at the same time, we don't, we haven't been investing as much in kind of the application of the science and understanding and, and even implementing the technologies as well, deploying the technologies, even with the vaccine for the for COVID right now, with Operation Warp Speed, I'm just trying to connect the dots here with, with um, current, we see that we've focused, you know, invested a lot in the technology and getting the vaccine, but we haven't invested in the workers and the trained um, community health professionals to effectively distribute it in in it in the the way that would be optimizing you know beneficial to society. So we have this um, uh, kind of prioritizing of technology oftentimes when we really need to be thinking about social innovation as well and investing in people and communities so that the technologies that we have and the technological innovations can um, help us uh, and and optimize and maximize the healthy society for everyone. One of the aspects of, of, uh, of your book that we'll talk about is, is, is health and, and, you know, just in reference to what you just said, the public, this pandemic has made it really obvious, uh, not just about the connection between health and so many other aspects of life, for example, climate, but also about our lack of investment, like you just said, into the public health infrastructure, right? And how we've sort of, um, we've, we were, we've been caught unprepared. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's really unfortunate because um, we have the resources to um, respond to both the pandemic and the climate crisis and, and other crises that we're facing um, in a more effective way, but we haven't been able to. And, and I guess that's kind of the core, um, one of the core messages of, of my, my work is L is making the connection that part of the reason it, that we haven't been effective in the ways that we could 
is because only a limited subset of our communities have been making the decisions. Um, and um, that's where this call for really diversifying, having a more inclusive leadership that represents more of us um, and brings different kinds of ideas to the table is so important. So we've, we've really been missing out um, because, and partly we're unprepared, because I think we've been focusing too much on this kind of technocratic perspective, um, thinking that technology will save us and we just need to invest in technology, but not um, considering and appropriately investing in people and communities and jobs and how to connect the um, deployment of the technologies to our, for our, the benefit of our families and communities um, in the ways that we could. So, so that, that's, that's where um, it's really a call for different kind of leadership that is more inclusive and, and diverse and representative in order to bring these different priorities to the table because um, we all um, bring our experiences um, that we've had in our lives to our work, to our community engagement, to our policy engagement, uh, to our making of priorities and and we really need more voices um at the table um i want i want to because you mentioned the table i want to weave in something that that made me laugh out loud in your book uh, and that is you talk about uh, one of the people that you talk about as as sort of um you know as as activists and hero heroes quote unquote heroes uh is shirley chisholm who, you know, who ran for president back in, what was it, 72, I think? Uh, you know, first first uh, uh, woman, African-American woman to do so. And you have this beautiful quote of her um, in, the, in, in the book where she says, if, if, I'm paraphrasing now, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Exactly. <laughs> that is so wonderful. <laughs> Yeah. That's sort of that's sort of been the theme in my life, and it's just really, you know, was a was a really fun moment for me to recognize to have somebody put that in words. Yes, and and she and so many other um, women and people of color have really been pioneers and had to be so bold, right, to yes. bring bring themselves to the table. And exactly. we're at a point now where what what we hope for and what the kind of um i think the potential is is for everybody to acknowledge why it's so valuable to have more people at the table um and not just have the women or the people of color uh the black folks or the indigenous people advocating for themselves but having everybody understand and appreciate and advocate for uh, more inclusive and diverse um, um, leadership. So when when I guess they're kind of and that's kind of where I I try to uh, tease out kind of two points um, when I talk about the need for anti-racist feminist leadership. On the one hand, it's really important to acknowledge that um, when women, people of color, indigenous folks are given opportunities um, or take opportunities for leadership. Um, we bring very different experiences, perceptions of risk also, 
um, because that is our perceptions of what of risk uh, is is related to our life experiences and priorities. Um, so it is really important to have diversity, and at the same time, it's also really important for anybody, man, woman, whatever your gender identification or whatever your racial or ethnic or cultural identification or sexual identification is to prioritize anti-racist feminist leadership because those the principles of anti-racism and feminism are about acknowledging that there's power structures and systemic um, constraints uh, related to people's ability to contribute and so we need everybody, including um, white men, right, to embrace anti-racist feminist principles. Um, and and when we get to that point, um, at which we are in, in 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 many places and in many situations and organizations and communities, um, then we are able to break through a lot of the historical legacy um, systemic problems that have just have been. Um, continued to kind of be exacerbated rather than reduced in, in some contexts. It's interesting to see the many great examples that you write about in your book about people being active in these various arenas that you've just been talking about uh, and, and, you know, building bridges between the, those sort of silos of, 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 of knowledge and silos of activism, like, you know, as you said, you know, anti-racism, anti-feminism, climate change, you know, and, and have a more horizontal view of all of these as opposed to, you know, just focusing on, on the various vertical sections. Um, but I guess I want to ask a kind of a provocative question. Um, just, I mean, history has also shown, especially recent history, and it's been really encouraging to see a lot more women and people of color uh, and, and, you know, diverse population, parts of the population to engage and, and, and to, and to act, to be active, uh, and and to demonstrate activism, but just ha just having more women per se isn't necessary solution. You know, just having more more African American people per se, because you know I've been watching some of, some of the what's been happening in the last five year, years and some of the debates lately. You know, not not all the women elected to Congress recently are are forward looking and. and and heading in, in a direction that will get us to some of the goals that you just outlined, right? Yes. No, that's absolutely true. And I think that's where um, the anchoring is not just on diversity and representation, because, I mean, if, even if you think of Amy Comey Barrett, for example, mm -hmm. who was uh, just um, the newest member of the Supreme Court, you wouldn't necessarily think of her as a feminist, Um Right or embracing feminist principles, so there there are a lot of examples like that. So so that's where um, the real focus on what considering anti-racist feminist principles, regardless of people's uh, own identity, is is so important as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that also opens it up and and is very welcoming to to uh, asking encouraging everybody everybody to um, learn about and understand what anti-racist feminist principles is really about, which, which, as I mentioned, is really about um, prioritizing, acknowledging, and resisting kind of the legacy and historical um, 
power dynamics that have continued to reinforce um, um, systems of of oppression and uh, disparate um, opportunities and inequities um, and be working constantly to in everything that we do, including our climate and energy policy, to make sure that those policies are working to um, dismantle the, that, those problematic systems rather than exacerbate and, and encourage the inequities. And, and that's where a lot of um, climate and energy policy um, so far has actually uh, continued to widen the income and wealth gap rather than um, uh, re reduce it. Um, so if you think about sol pa uh, policies to encourage solar panels, rooftop solar, in a lot of communities around uh, the country, um, those incentives and subsidies have gone mostly to single family homes where um, the homeowners have, you know, quite a bit of extra cash in the in the bank, and they can invest in, you know, spend some money to invest in the solar panels, and then they get all the subsidy to help reduce that cost, and then they end up with kind of free electricity going forward. Um, and so many lower income um, communities and households have been excluded from that, right? So it's actually ended up um, making inequities worse rather than better. So um, the Biden administration does have plans to um, prioritize 40% um, of investments in renewable energy to um, frontline communities and communities that have been underinvested for too long um, with a goal of using those investments to make sure that we are um, reducing rather than exacerbating inequities. Yeah. I just want to take a moment to let our listeners know that you're listening to Wild Oak Living on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYXMG. This is Johanna Wild Oak. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. And today I am talking to my guest, uh, Jenny Stevens, who is the author of a new book uh, called Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. Uh, Jenny Stevens is the director of the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs and the Dean's Professor of Sustainability, Science and Policy at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. And we are talking about some of the concepts. Uh, even even though we, we're, we can go for the hour today, there's not nearly enough time to talk about everything. I want to make sure that we leave plenty of time to talk about the solutions that you offer at the end, because you know one of the things that I like to focus on in my pro in my problem in my program is not so much problems but solutions. Um, you know, because uh, I, I I like to feature people that offer solutions, and I like to offer people solutions to you know to engage in in our in our own lives going forward. Um, so uh, I I just want to pick um, one aspect that that I found really inspiring and encouraging about your book, and that's the whole aspect uh, of energy democracy. You have this you have this whole uh, you have this this really interesting statement that I highlighted. Um, because, and, and against this is the reason I found it inspiring is because often when we talk about transitioning to um, renewable energy, 
or it, people talk a lot about what we have to give up. You know, we have to give up driving gas cars. We have to give up eating meat, even though I have a whole theory about that. But <laughs> let's not get into that. Um, but but what you write, and this is really inspiring, the renewable resources are plentiful and reliable. So a renewable-based future will be founded on abundance and predictability rather than scarcity and volatility. And this is interesting because I think a lot of what we've what we're seeing happening now in in our country is based on this fear of scarcity and this and this volatility of of people's social situations. Um, and 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 you know, I, and and people are afraid of what will happen if we move forward. Do we have what what do we have to give up and we don't get anything back, and our lives are going to be even more volatile than they are now. So I'm wondering, you know, how how to get the message out that that moving forward to renewable energy doesn't have to be doesn't have to mean giving up. Absolutely, thank you. That's a great question. I'm I'm so glad that those ideas, um, you know, were highlighted as you were reading, and and I think that's that's really fundamental. Um, and I think one of the things that we need to acknowledge is that a renewable-based future um, is an opportunity to kind of restructure society also um, because renewable energy, um, basically every community in the world has access to renewable energy in one way or another. Um, solar and wind, um, you know, are, are available everywhere to some degree. Places in coastal communities also have offshore wind. Uh, they also, there's potential for wave and tidal energy that can be harnessed um, in the oceans. Um, places inland have potential for geothermal energy, which is energy in, in the earth that um, we have not invested in and, and it's really accessible everywhere. Um, so, there is really an opportunity to redistribute power literally and figuratively. Um, and what, what that means is we can have locally owned, regionally controlled and managed and, and even the profits and the benefits from the energy system can also connect right back into the community in terms of jobs and, and other benefits rather than the system that we have had which is the fossil fuel-based system, which only a few parts of the world profit immensely and have created this real discrepancy. Um, and in the book, we talk about I talk about the idea of the polluter elite, uh, which are um, you know fossil fuel interests, CEOs of big energy companies, um, other shareholders, and and who have really leveraged the their fossil fuel resources to um, um, make a lot of money and 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 then and then over the decades even in the 70s and 80s when it became clear that fossil burning fossil fuels is really dangerous for the for the climate also for public health there's so many reasons why we need to we need to transition away from fossil fuels and we've known that but those um, entities who have been uh, profiting have really concentrated their wealth and power by um, very strategic investments to resist 
us moving away from fossil fuels. So they have um, had a misinformation campaign to deny climate science. They've also undermined public trust in the government um, and um, also minimized worker protections and worker rights. So all of that has come together to um, make us really not understand the potential of renewable energy and it, and and i think we're getting to a place now where more people understand i had in my home um a, about five or ten years ago we put solar panels on the roof and um a neighbor walked by and he looked up and he said oh i never noticed those before and then he said oh i heard those don't work um <laughs> You know, like he really didn't know. He he had heard or thought, and there's some, you know, in some circles that there's this sense that, oh, well, renewables can't, they, they don't really work or they'll never be sufficient. Um, there's no way we can scale them up and all or these wind, kinds wind power, of... Or wind power makes you sick. Or wind power makes you sick or, you know, <laughs> the intermittency problem, right? Like the right. sun isn't always shining, the wind isn't always blowing, but... When you think about a renewable-based system that has a combination of these different technologies, different sources of energy, and as you pointed out in the beginning of this question, is that renewable energy is actually abundant and you know, it's actually more reliable than fossil fuels because fossil fuels, there's all kinds of geopolitics. We don't know how much it's going to cost, where it's going to come from. Um, so there really is um, a miss. An, uh, an opportunity here for seeing our investments in renewable energy as moving toward a plentiful, abundant, and, and actually, once you've invested in the technology to leverage the wind or the sun or the or water or geothermal, it's actually, that's what renewable means. It's perpetual and it keeps coming and it's free, right? The source of the energy is free. And nobody owns it. And nobody owns it. You just own the, the turbine or the, you know, whatever... But you don't own the source, which is actually, and that's what's transformative, right? Um, that it's not just about, oh, how, how much does gasoline cost or how much does um, electricity cost or renewables? It's when we um, recognize the linkages with these different problems that we can make more transformative change rather than just, oh, small, you know, here's something to solve that, to address that problem here's something else to solve that problem and and i think during the pandemic the disruptions of the pandemic have really um revealed to us how so many things are connected um and 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 that's also why i'm optimistic that now when we think about um the you know the post-pandemic life and society um we can hope that there will need to be some investments made, right, to recover and regain and and re regroup. Um, and we hope that those investments are simultaneously addressing these multiple different problems together rather than kind of keeping things in isolation and separate. Um, and, and so that's where um, this, this, this different way of thinking about energy democracy and connecting things, the renewable transformation to these other areas is, is really powerful. 
Let's talk a, a bit. Oh, it's already 9.30, so let me do another station ID. Uh, you are tuned to Wild Up Living on KZYX and Z, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. This is Johanna Wild Oak. I bring you this program every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send an email to contact at wildoak.org. That's contact at wildoak.org. My guest today is Jenny Stevens. She is the author of Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. And my guest, Jenny Stevens, is the director of the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs and the Dean's Professor of Sustainability Science and Policy at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. And we are talking about um, what what I'd like to do now is, is move into your... Um, uh, the conclusion section of your book where you talk a lot about solutions. So I already mentioned earlier there, the book, the book talks about, uh, about many different aspects um, in it, in including uh, nutrition, as you just mentioned, housing, health, uh, transportation. So I would encourage people who would like to learn more details and also read inspiring stories about groups and people that are active in these areas uh, and that are bringing it all together um, I would, you know, I would refer you to the book to read about some of that, but I'd like to talk about some of the solutions now, and then we will all open up the phone lines, dear listeners, and you can join us in this conversation. Um, let's talk about um, some of the solutions, um, action steps that, that people can take. Um, yeah. Learning that we can do, communication that we can do, I'll I'll let I'll let you pick and choose from from your solution section what you'd like to talk about today. Absolutely, thank you. Yes. So the one um, one thing to consider is that um, we can we we all need to kind of be aware of um, the fossil fuel power structures. So we want to be resisting those who are trying to encourage us to stay reliant on fossil fuels because that is um, an old strategy. So we really need to be um, advocating for local community renewable energy and also state level energy, renewable energy policy and national and international level. And that's happening. And so there are lots of ways that anybody in, in, in your community can get involved with, with that. Another really important thing is to consider that we are all leaders. This is a book about leadership. When I talk, when we advocate for anti-racist feminist leadership, um, but we're all leaders. It's not just about elected officials. Um, it's about we are leaders in our families, in our households, in our communities, in the organizations that we're affiliated with, in our um, faith faith-based um, affiliations, and so we. Um, you know, we we there's been kind of um, a, a disempowering effect in in the in the recent times, and I think it's it. We all need to acknowledge that we all have agency, and um, we really want to act as leaders and inspire other others um, to be leaders, especially young people. Right? I work in a in a university, um, so I get to work with young people. Um, all, all the time, and I also have two daughters who are 20 and 21. So I, the you know, the youth um, look to the future, and it doesn't look so positive, right? Not just 
the climate crisis, but also economically. Um, you know, people are worried about the future of jobs and and ha- how people are going to have a prosperous um, future, and and so we really um, ha- can collectively come together and um, um, advocate for s- bigger systems change, right? Um, with in collaboration, and that's the other thing that's really been inspiring. Um, and as I highlight in the book, lots of kind of new. Uh, coalitions of activists in different areas are, have have been coming together um, in in connecting the Black Lives Matter movement with the Sunrise movement, the youth climate activism movement, um, with other um, social justice and housing justice uh, advocacy, and and there's when. You know, we don't always hear about all that's going on, and and I think that was also what I tried to do in the book is elevate some of the stories of really inspiring people and organizations who are doing, in collaboration, a lot of a lot of different things. Um, that that I think really gets uh, can be um, motivating for all, for all of us to to take 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 action and and get involved in in whatever ways make sense. I mean, obviously now with the pandemic. We're all constrained in terms of our um, um, physical getting together and, and organizing, but there's a lot of opportunities online um, and and a lot of um, ways to continue to connect and 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 be active um, virtually and and in the different organizations that we that we are part of. One of the one of the things that that sort of transcends all the topics that you talk about, and it's one of the solution topics that you talk about in your book, is to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in everything we do. So you know, even if you don't pick one of those areas that we've been talking about as your as your activism and leadership area, you know, pretty much every time we open our mouths, we have an or we write something, we have an opportunity to be inclusive, right? Absolutely. And, and so many of us, you know, we don't even realize all of the ways that we might be reinforcing um, uh, injustices and, and supporting kind of uh, the, the conventional way of doing things often assumes certain things about different people's capacities and different people's what people um, have bring to any conversation or or to professional opportunities and and we really need to be constantly um, reassessing and reflecting on our on ourselves and our own own role in um, disrupting the the problematic uh, systemic racism that is so um, prevalent in so many aspects. And, and sort of one sub aspect of that is, you know, especially for, for sort of the, the middle age and older generation to inspire leadership in young people. Absolutely. Yes. I think as in every, um, I mean, you, we also can learn so much from the youth as well. Yeah, right. Um, and so there, it's, it's, it's a interactive um, and collaborative effort, I think for sure. Yeah. Right now, I feel like the young people are actually pushing us to do yes. more, which is yes, which is really great. 
Um, well, so much more we could talk about, but I did promise that we would open up the phone lines in case people, you know, would like to contribute towards this conversation, or if you have a question for my guest, Jenny Stevens, who is the the author of Diversifying Power, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. Um, give us a call here in the studio. The number is 707-895-2448. That's 707-895-2448. If you'd like to join this conversation or if you're listening to us online, you can send an email to contact at wildoak.org uh, if you have a question or a comment. Um, and uh, while while we wait for that, um, you, you mentioned, um, you have, of course, a whole list of resources in your book, but you mentioned particularly um, the, the Rowan Institute, and you, you offer a, a table of organizational principles that, that, that are fairly general in the sense that, you know, that they can apply, be applied to a lot of, uh, a lot of different projects. And, and I just wondered if we could talk a bit, a bit about that, um, because it, it seems it, some of these points um, make a lot of sense. You know, we just talked about in everything we do, we can make a difference. I'm wondering if you could maybe, while we wait for a call, take us through some of that. Yeah, so um, some of the kind of principles, and again, this is kind of in kind of implementing anti-racist feminist leadership, right? Like, what mm -hmm. are the kinds of things um, that we all could, can be doing? And, um, you know, the, the spectrum of, of kind of action steps um, ranges from kind of really listening and learning from each other in in a very um, empathetic way and um, and and also then centering marginalized voices like acknowledging okay who historically and and has been excluded from whatever these conversations and how do we reach out and include people um, in a more explicit and, and intentional way. Um, Not just have them in the room, but actually put them front and center, right? Absolutely. And that means changing. Often that means changing the way we do things. Because if we keep doing things the same way and just expect uh, um, different people to to join, um, that, that, that alone doesn't always work, right? Um, it, we actually, it often means changing the structure or the invitation or the, you know, the way um, meetings or, or processes are, are designed. So um, I think that's, that's kind of a, a key thing. Um, and then we also, you know, all want to be advocating for and acting for, um, anti-racist principles and anti-colonialism so that it brings in a, a deeper kind of uh, again acknowledgement of the historical uh, power structures that have um, given so many of us privilege while really extracting and and um, um, extracting from others and and this kind of um, oppressive systems. So we really want to be constantly um, advocating for ways to redress the, these damages that have been perpetuated um, and, and move away from um, situations where um, we are, you know, continuing to perpetuate the inequities and, and disparities. 
So um, they're definitely in this space. There's definitely a role for um, um, science and information to help justify and explain um, how and what needs to, to be changed. Um, and another key thing is is being transparent and genuine and and um, so that the inclusive um, environment that we create in our interactions and in our organizations is is um, clear and welcoming and for, for everyone, um, not just those who have traditionally been kind of in the know, right, and, and who may know more about how, how things have been structured in the past. Um, so those are some of the the kind of specific, some of the ways to kind of operationalize um, some of those uh, principles. I have a question about that, but first I'd like to invite our listeners to join this conversation. If you have a question or something to add to this conversation, please give us a call at 707-895-2448 and Eddie will let us know if your call comes in. Uh, meanwhile, and that phone number again is 707-895-2448 or send an email to contact at wildoak.org um, if you are listening online or if you don't want to call in. Uh, uh, and um, let me just make sure that I'm downloading my email. So the question of, and it's kind of a, you know, I know you said that, you know, inclusion and, and also having, for example, men speak about women and, and white people speak about, you know, uh, um, African-American or, or American people or people of color. One of the challenges for me has always been, and I know that that's sort of a, a common problem, is I don't feel like, um, or maybe I, I've been made to feel, I'm not sure where the word comes from, that, that, that I, you know, that I have a right to speak about an experience that isn't my experience. I'm wondering how how what kind of advice you would have to offer for that quandary. Yeah, so it's really not um, about speaking for other people, right? It's mm -hmm. it's acknowledging why and how it's so important and valuable for all of us to make sure that people do have the opportunity to speak for themselves, right? And too many people have been excluded from speaking from the, for themselves in certain decision-making entities and things like that. So, so um, it's more about advocating. What we can, we can do is not speak for other people, but advocate for, the, for others to have an opportunity to speak. And, then, and, and, and when I say speak, I'm, I'm talking bro more broadly than just speaking up, but, but having that agency. So if you think about... Um, chapter one of the book is called Growing the Squad, um, and um, I'm sure many of your let, listeners... Let's talk a bit about that, because I yeah. sort of skipped over that, but that's an important aspect of your book, yeah. Yeah, so I'm sure many of uh, your listeners know that the squad in terms of the these four um, junior congresswomen who came on the national stage just two years ago, and they've really kind of radically shifted the discourse um, in, in many areas, but particularly related to climate in terms of connecting it to um, jobs and the Green New Deal and housing and uh, racial justice. And they have really, they demonstrate what I um, 
consider, um, you know, kind of this example of anti-racist feminist leadership, which is really focused on a collaborative approach, an inclusive approach. Um, and they're really, their priority is reducing inequities and disparities by centering racial justice, economic justice, social justice in every, every kind of policy, right? Um, there's no, there's no um, policy that isn't related to those issues, really. Um, and um, they're also really focused on distributing wealth and power and acknowledging that they are anomalous in our political system simply because they're women of color, right? Um, and they bring very different experiences and different priorities. Um, and they, um, and, and a lot of people actually feel very threatened by them, right? Be and they've, they've received, um, you know, really horrible, uh, negative attention as well, because people, um, who do feel threatened, uh, have really kind of attacked them in, in really, uh, problematic ways, but they also kind of speak to truth to power. And when you hear and and listen to what they are advancing and their advocacy and their and their priorities, um, it's not really that radical. It shouldn't be in many sense, right? They're talking about standing up for what um, communities um, need in terms of education and healthcare and housing. And um, and really acknowledging the economic inequities and trying to re reverse that, and um, you know that that only seems radical to those who, who want to keep things the status quo, keep things the way they are, and tell people, oh, this is just the way it is, and there's there isn't we don't need to change, we don't need to respond to these crises. Um, and so I'm really inspired by them, um, and and I think they are collectively and individually really um, having a huge impact and and um, yeah I'm, I'm inspired and, and proud uh, I, I'm, I live in Massachusetts so representative congresswoman Ayanna Presley is my own congresswoman um, and she is just amazing and and really inspiring and and opening up um, just like you mentioned Shirley Chisholm at the beginning, each leader opens up opportunities for others to come, right? And and that's also what's really exciting. You mentioned the Green New Deal. Um, this is something that you know people often mention by name, but but uh, I think most people, if if asked to to say what it really means and what it really is, probably be stumped. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe you could talk about a bit about it and and how it addresses many of the topics that we've been talking about today. Yeah, so the Green New Deal is um, a proposal that was um, first put out um, in um, early 2019 um, to really address the climate crisis through investment rather than making things, you know, taking things away or making things harder for people, which is often the strategy when you talk about carbon tax or, you know, other approaches. Um, but through, by investing in jobs and job training in terms of connecting the renewable energy investments that need to be made with jobs um, and, and really just use, 
leveraging the transition away from fossil fuels to um, renewables as an opportunity to invest in communities and 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 jobs and particularly low income and under invested in communities so that's the 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 original framework um, for the Green New Deal. And then within that, there has now been, um, you know, evolution of different specific policies within that. And then some um, states and some regions of the country and even the EU now has a Green New Deal framework. And here in the city of Boston, um, there has been a proposal for a Green New Deal for, for the city of Boston. So it's a it's also it's become a framework um, that has been adopted in different places and the Biden administration um, and the proposal for Biden's and Kamala Harris the Biden Harris um, climate plan um, they they haven't explicitly connected with the Green New Deal but the level of investment and the strategies that they have incorporated in their planning um, are very similar and and uh, again are about investing. Um, and connecting really jobs with renewable energy, but but potential for more than that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's 9.53. We only have about six minutes left in our conversation today. And I would like to invite you to maybe talk to us about some of the inspiring stories that maybe pick one or two of the inspiring stories that, that you write about in your book. Yeah, so... Um, one um, specific person and organization that I highlight is Jackie Patterson of the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program. And she and her team have developed a um, uh, report and a whole series of, of strategies to really elevate the role that the fossil fuel industry has played in um, in manipulating black communities in particular who have been disproportionately negatively impacted by uh, our fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, so she is one, one example of really powerful work in terms of really resisting that polluter elite that I, that I mentioned. Um, another leader that I, um, I think is really important to mention is uh, Jacinda Ardern, um, yeah. who's the Prime Minister of New Zealand. She's one who, of my heroes. <laughs> yeah, and she is important to acknowledge um, because she, along with um, uh, other countries that are led by women, including um, Denmark and um, and uh, Taiwan and New Zealand, they have been among the countries that have been the most effective in um, com managing the coronavirus, the pandemic, and they've done it through very intentional, trusted communication to the people about why the extreme measures they're taking that are based on science and evidence are necessary, um, and then um, really acknowledging and, and with empathy and kind of compassion, explaining to people it's not just for your own individual health, but it's for the health of the community and for the health of the whole country. And that is the same kind of leadership that we need on climate um, and that really prioritizes health and, um, and then connects it with empathy and compassion 
with a very clearly laid out strategy for how and why the measures that are going to be taken are needed. And um, so, so that's another one of the other examples that I that I think are really important. But there's so many, um, and there's there's um, other other uh, examples, including um, uh, Gina McCarthy, who is the um, she's the well, she's just been announced uh, as the kind of the climate czar for the Biden Harris administration, but she was previously the head of the NRDC and before that Obama's head of the EPA. And she has throughout her career has been advocating to connect climate with health. Um, and, and because of a lot of the work that she's done and others, um, the climate crisis has now been uh, declared a health emergency in, in many communities and, and, and places. So um, I think that's another example of, of kind of just a different lens and different approach that is so desperately needed. Well, in the last couple of minutes that we have, uh, Jenny Stevens, would you like to talk about, uh, you know, any contact information that you'd like to share, website, website, where can people learn more about your book, order your book? Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, yes, my so my website is jennycstevens.com, and you can find out more about the book and also about other other things that I've been writing and doing. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Jenny C. Stevens. Um, and um, the book can be purchased at any um, bookseller. I encourage local bookstores and and bookshop.org is a great online um, uh, resource that, that connects with local bookshops. Um, and all author proceeds from the book um, will be go directly to the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program to uh, continue to support the inspiring work that they are doing. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate this conversation and really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you for the work that you're doing and all the best going forward. Great. Thank you so much, Johanna. Thank great, you. great to be on the show. This is Johanna Wild Oak. You've been listening to Wild Oak Living. I'm going to be back two weeks from now on January 28th, and we're going to be talking some more about the Mask Awareness Program. We're going to feature a few fourth graders talking about what they're doing about mask awareness. And I'm going to be talking to Laura Levitt, who wrote a book about called The Objects That Remain. If you'd like to learn more about upcoming programs, just send me an email to contact at wildoak.org, and I can put you on a list for announcements of future programs. And um, I'd like to thank you for listening to Wild Oak Living today. Thanks for tuning in. As I said earlier, this program comes to you every Thursday, every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. So as I said, the next program is coming up on January 28th. Um, it's a new year. And if you, uh, one of your New Year's resolutions was to be more active in the community and, uh, and to support things that are important to you, you can support KZYX by going to KZYX and donating or becoming a member. And that's also where you can find out archived uh, versions of this program and many other programs, kzyx.org. You can go to our jukebox and uh, download this program. It'll be up there for a couple of months, I think, about two months. And um, 
and listen to it again or share it with your friends. And please tune in on January 28th for the next edition of Wild Dog Living. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for tuning in and take care and be safe. Talk to you in two weeks. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.